gonna say it But somebody should Let's talk about tune time Let's talk about bum wine Yeah, asking the questions that nobody should Like who are the bone thugs and are they in harmony? Hey everybody, welcome. We're going to just uh, continue marching right on through our um, exhaustive review of Model Land audiobook. We're calling it audiobook podcast, book audio cast. We're just going to keep marching through this. So this next section is called Admiring the D. Are you? The first piece of dialogue in this chapter, spoken aloud by a giant face made out of vines and flowers. But before we talk about the D, Dylan summarizes the last chapter for us, for some reason, in her sort of accent. Please excuse me if you find this offensive. Um, this is, I'm going to just do this as it's written. Honey child, I just been invaded by bacteria, sliced and diced by earrings, stabbed by a monster needle, and had my head imprisoned in a bubble. Thanks, Dylan. It's almost like this book was written with the knowledge that a person can only take about one chapter at a time, after which a month-long hiatus is necessary. Which brings us here, the D. The D is not as exciting as I hoped. It's basically a sorority house, or what I imagine a sorority house is. It's like a sorority house for lame teacher students or something. Why do I say that? How about this gem from the tour of the D? This is the uncommon room where you all hang out. I see what you did there. This room is anything but common. What with its couches, tables, and pillows? Haha, <laughs> whoa, watch out. Lock up your, I don't know, antique library card catalogs that could be turned into a jewelry box or some shit. Don't tell me this uncommon room is where you get crazy and play cards against humanity. And one time you binge like a whole season of Sherlock in here. And the cat walked across the piano in the middle of the night and freaked everyone out because they thought it was a ghost. Oh, the uncommon room. These are the memories that will bolster me for another day of teaching long division. These times where my wild oats were sown allow me to settle down and slowly build up my scrapbook of things discontinued by restoration hardware. That's really bitter. I hated school, not teachers. Sometimes the bitter spills over, though. Sorry. You're mostly good people, teachers. Just stop wearing sweaters with embroidered chalkboards that say A-plus on them. Can we agree on this one thing? Once we're in the uncommon room, the remaining 50-some girls in Tookie's class receive their centuras, special scarf things that are worn around the hips and make a person's powers even more powerful. Think of these like Charles Xavier's science helmet, Cerebro, which enhances his already existing power. Think about it like that, except these are color-coordinated scarves instead of cool science helmets. And remember that the powers we've, been so, we've seen so far include bullshit like the ability to make people want to buy stuff. Wolverine, these folks ain't. Hell, they're not even Jubilee. At least Jubilee could fuck up the TV in a bar that shouldn't have a TV. At least Jubilee could totally make your phone go wacky if you were hanging out together and on Instagram nonstop, and she was like, I'm a real person, pay attention to me, not your stupid phone. Then the sparks happen, then the anger about who owes how much money to who. Tookie gets a Centura too, 
And this is yet another thing she can't believe. She just can't fucking believe it. Swear to fuck, every minute of Tookie's life is like that part in the blind side. I never had one of these before. What, your own room? A bed. It's like that, except not touching and not interesting, and holy fuck, when is Tookie going to accept that some weird shit is going on and she's part of it? It's like that weird thing in Zelda. Every time you find a new thing in Zelda, you hear that da na 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 Link holds the new find up in the air so we know what the fuck it is, and then we move on. Model Land is like that because it doesn't seem to matter what Link gets. He's equally fucking pumped. Empty jar, jar with a live bee in it. Oh, that bee. That little fucker was like my mutually assured destruction in the game. What I wouldn't have given to be able to tell bad guys, listen, if you don't leave me alone, I'm opening this bee jar, and none of us are going to be happy about it. I might get stung more than you. I probably will, but I will do it, so don't push me. This book is like, imagine playing The Legend of Zelda, and every time you found a new item, all that normal stuff happens, and then there's a dialogue box where Link says, gosh, I'm just a boy of questionable lineage, elf, part elf, who started off swordless on an adventure, and now look at me, owning my very own empty jar. I never dreamed this would happen. I'm so pure of heart that everything is a gift from the universe, and every mouthful of bread is like the heavens smiling down on me, and holy shit, it's kind of hard to get anything done because I'm always thanking no one in particular for every small fortune, but so be it. Hashtag love and life. That is Model Land. But let's not dwell on this. Let's go to the second floor. Up the staircase, constructed of only flat, suspended boards that are supported seemingly by nothing. No rail, no risers, just the flat steps. Let's not dwell on that either because A, this is exactly the kind of thing that in a good narrative, would come back later, and B, we're going up to the second floor to get bedrooms assigned, and C, it's time to get Harry Potter up in this biatch. We've done Willy Wonka, we've done Hunger Games, we've done R.L. Stein cliffhangers, but so far we're missing a little Harry Potter. That is, until we go up the magical stairs, find bedrooms, and bump into invisible beds, which then become visible, after which a pencil scratching sound happens in the room, and each girl's face is drawn onto her comforter by magic invisible pencils. But that's not all. What Harry Potter story would be complete without some kind of magic gizmo? Enter the Headbangor. The Headbangor. Basically a headband iPod. That's waterproof. Because one of Tookie's friends has a terrible music addiction. Her professor-slash-inventor father made it for her, and she wears it all the time, and the songs piped in are sung by her actor-director-singer-mother. And wait a second, what Harry Potter story would be complete without a bully? Which is why our nemesis, Zarpessa, is room, roomies with Tookie. Of course. I have a Harry Potter question. Actually, I have a lot, but one of my questions about is about Crab and Goyle. We have a sorting hat if you're just letting dopes... Why have a, do, a sorting hat if you're just letting dopes like that in the school? Seriously, those numb nuts were totally worthless. And you think that a school run completely on magic nerds would develop a system that weeded out kids whose primary joy came from picking on magic nerds. Moving on, what Harry Potter story would be complete without weird arbitrary rules, such as the rule introduced here that the model candidates can only keep two of the things they brought with them? For Tookie, it's easy. T-mail jail, which I didn't even know she brought with her, but was apparently stashed in her cargo pants, which I didn't know she was wearing when she left, but would have been a nice detail because everyone looks bad in cargo pants, except what's-her-face from Freaks and Geeks, who pulled off that 90s grunge military jacket thing like a champ. What's item number two? Of course, the button. 
the magic button that got smushed early in the chapters to kind of not really spell out her name, T-O-O-K-E, that beloved object that came about when Tookie's crush, Theophilus, accidentally squished it and shot it all around the room in crazy fashion, and Tookie dug it out of the garbage, after which she kept and cherished the item to these last 48 hours or so. This fucking button. As if the origin of the button wasn't insane enough, Tookie busts it out, then realizes she can't be seen with it in front of Zarpessa, who is Theophilus' real girlfriend, and will somehow identify it as an object of her boyfriend's. What happens next is hard to explain, so I'm just going to say what the book says. Tookie busts out this button, someone asks what it is, Tookie panics, looks around the room, runs into the hallway, picks a flower from the wall, attaches it to the button, and then comes back in the room, a cool customer, and is all like, oh, this is a corsage and shit, probably not even button-based. The perfect crime. The perfect nonsensical crime motivated by nothing. And then Tookie puts on a nightie with an attached motherfucking cape, and the Harry Potter cloning is complete. What's next, a laser sword duel? A bunch of boys crash land on an island and beat up a fatty? A cancer-based romance? What bases do we have left to cover? If you said Requiem for a Dream, and if you figured Tookie would sleepwalk into a room where CL was beating herself bloody with a paddle and wailing, you were totally right. And I really question the way your brain works and wonder if you're interested in participating in a really crazy study. Anyway, I'll leave you with this line from Tookie's sleepwalking adventure. This definitely isn't the D. Indeed, if there's one thing you know on site, it's the D. Quote, Every new Bella started menstruating at exactly the same time. Mic drop. A couple days ago, I was saying that this book has aped Harry Potter, Hunger Games, and all kinds of other stuff, but I forgot Judy Bloom. I should have known we'd get to Bloom. The chapter begins with Tookie having stomach pains, and then another Bella, model candidate, said, well, the line quoted above. I should be fair to Tyra and say that it's explained three times that a one-day sync-up is not what normally happens. Tyra repeatedly explains that cohabitation can cause a sync-up where everyone's Aunt Flo visits on the same day, but it normally takes months, or longer than 24 hours. Tyra is so good about explaining this that I'm like, okay, I get it. I get that you don't think this is how it happens in real life. Jeez. I mean, three times in one chapter. Also, I'm not happy with that Aunt Flo thing. How is that a euphemism for period? That's like me taking a dump and saying, Oh, I just gave birth to a baby named Duke, 7 pounds, 8 ounces, healthy boy, very healthy boy. We've come a long way in this book. Young Tookie has gone from girl to woman in these pages, or from girl without a period to girl with a period, or woman without a period to woman with a period. I'm not really sure what the defining thing is between a girl and a woman, and I'm not totally convinced it's period-based. If so, then what's the defining thing that separates boys from men? I say it's the first time that you perceive that the world is a horrible and crushing place, and it's best to just stay inside, so for me, somewhere around second grade, I became a man. If women would like to use that same standard, I think that'd be cool, although I guess we'd have to start calling a lot of elementary school students men and women. The period talk isn't over, but I just want to put a short bit about the class we attend in Model Land during this chapter. This is kind of how the chapter is structured, anyway. Period then class, period, then more period, so we'll do the same thing here. Let's look at Tookie's class schedule copied here verbatim. Uno, cara, 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 time, midnight blue, sharp. 
Dose. Runaway Intensive. Time. Kelly Green. Sharp. Trace. Mastication. Time. Goldenrod. Sharp. All right. Am I expert enough a linguist to break this down? Can I channel my inner Tookie who speaks every language and translate this from fuckface to English? Our first column is obviously Spanish. Got it. Why we need a time and an order is a little confusing, and why the number is there in Spanish instead of as a numeral, especially if we're dealing with girls who don't all speak the same goddamn motherfucking language, I don't know. Excuse me. Especially if we're dealing with women who don't all speak the same goddamn motherfucking language. These may have been girls yesterday, but they've bloomed, spelled like Judy Bloom, into womanhood. Apologies. Next column on the schedule, we have the class name. Instead of being a class that has a name that kind of says what the class is about, we have this crazy horseshit. Most classes are named by what you study. What do you study in this class? Chemistry? Okay, then let's call it chemistry, how about? Not in Model Land. The Model Land version of that conversation. What's this class about? Chemistry? Okay, hmm, let's call it something about chemicals, beakers, pipettes, fashion. Camisolistry. Done and done. Finally, the time portion of the schedule. Time is told by color in Model Land. Again, replacing the universality of numbers with something that no one understands. Good, perfect. That makes all the sense in the world. This is what I fucking hate about Model Land. This is the thing right now, anyway. There are lots of things to hate, and they rotate through my brain like a carousel of hate. A lazy Susan, where all the spices are stupid. Tarragon. A Haiti Susan of hate spice, if you will. A good sci-fi or fantasy thing to do is take something in real life, twist it a little, and thereby make the world a stranger, more interesting place. But the trick is you have to actually improve something, not make it shittier and weirder for the sake of making it weird, also with no explanation of how any of it works. Let's look at some weird clocks that do a better job than Model Land when it comes to telling time. Alright, so we've got an image of a clock that looks like it's got a bunch of vacuum tubes with, you know, like, neon numbers and wires. It's very steampunk looking. Um, crazy wires and tubes and shit still uses numbers. Then we've got a clock that's got equations. So at noon is 6 times 2. Um, you know, 6 is 1 8 times 96 halves. <laughs> you know, okay, you know, uh, two, 2 o'clock is square root of 4. You get the idea. This is, clock is obnoxious, it makes you do math. I'll be mad if I ever see this in your home, but it does still use numbers. Um, here's a giant clock that's on the ceiling that's made of like those uh, fluorescent lights you see, um, those rectangular ones, and so it's a grid that forms the, the number eight, and based on what time it is, the different uh, things light up to make like a two or a five or whatever. I guess if you really want to feel time pressing down on you, ruining every fiber of your being, this is one way to go. My god, talk about a way of saying get back to work with all the subtlety of the Hulk lifting a clock factory and smashing it over your face. Now this one is a, a ride at Chuck E. Cheese. It's like a, a clock, and you sit in a little chair that's on like the minute hand, and it goes around. This is a ride. A fucking ride, and it's still a better representation of the way time works. It's not a good clock, nor is it a good ride. I mean, I can remember being on something like this and hoping I only had to go around one time because by the time I hit the apex, I was bored as shit, 
but still better clock than Model Land. Now this one is a um, statue of what looks like a black guy carrying a heavy barrel on his back, and on the barrel's top is a clock face. This one is racist as fuck, and it's still a better method to tell time. Awful racist clockmakers were better at time than the whole of Model Land. Now this is one where it's um, Mario, and there's an uh, hour and a minute hand or normal, and then it's got like a... You know how grandfather clock has the pendulum that swings back and forth for the seconds? It's like that, but the pendulum's a Goomba. Um, and the Goomba's attached to a little stick coming out of Mario's crotch. This one has what I can only assume is a Goomba swinging from Mario's wiener. I know it doesn't look exactly like that, but graphics weren't as good back in the day, you guys. You really had to fill in a lot with your imagination. A shitty turtle was a deadly beast, and a straight black line was a juicy wang. And even though this clearly pornographic clock is inappropriate in a lot of ways, one could use it to tell time. Okay, we do actually make it to class in this chapter, despite the schedule complications, and it turns out that Kara 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 goes like this. An instructor who sounds like Speedy Gonzalez tells the girls to make opposite faces of their emotions. The girls are shown various images, such as a rabbit with no ears, and then a Quote, photo of a dead cat giving birth to an octopus on an abandoned road, end quote. Judy Bloom and David Lynch, all in one chapter. Oh, and this whole class takes place in a giant ship that's constructed out of a whale carcass. I'm blowing through this because at the end of class, a statue constructed of an elephant that doesn't exist in the periodic, of an element that doesn't exist in the periodic table, comes to life and tells the girls that from now on, they will never have periods for the rest of their lives. They can still procreate, but gone are the cramps and whatever other crap goes along with a period. Just note, if a new element is discovered, it's just added to the table as happened earlier this year. That's how science works. Let me recap something here. At the beginning of this chapter, Tuki got her first period, a potentially interesting event in a young girl's life. I'd imagine especially if she were to be away from home in a strange place. This is a potentially powerful grounding element for this story that could mix with the humanity of this situation with the kooky model and whateverness. And as a quick aside, it did not go unnoticed by this reader that Tookie got her first period, didn't do anything about it, and then just went about her day. Maybe, I don't know. And yes, I'm aware that she could cramp before there was any bleeding, but God help me, I wanted to know what kind of tampons they have in Model Land. I'm that deep in the rabbit hole. If you present me with something like this, God damn it, I want to know. I want to know what crazy-ass name they'd have. Crampons? Clampacks? I want to know what sort of weird packaging they would come in. Our main characters just saw a road-killed cat corpse give birth to a live octopus, so I ask you, who is the weirdo here? But we didn't address periods beyond their existence, really, and it didn't matter one bit because no sooner does Tookie get a period than a magic statue makes it so none of the girls ever have to have periods again for the rest of their lives. Okay, that's even another route. You could go the route of saying that Model Land is stripping away these human things about the models. But then again, you really can't because Tookie has her period for all of an hour before it's gone forever. How much is she going to miss it? So it seems that we've got another situation in Model Land where the way something was executed was the least powerful or interesting way. Almost purposefully so. 
Tyler wants the credit of bringing up periods in womanhood, but can't be bothered to write about it for more than a chapter, so fuck it, we'll just wipe the slate clean once again. Gah. As a quick PS, I got a Kindle for Christmas, and so now I can A, read this book in public and not be embarrassed. I'm not a believer in book shaming, but I do think I should be book shamed for reading Model Land, so there you go. And B, I can tell exactly how far into the book I am. Right at 41%. Almost halfway. I don't really know what bullets could possibly be left in the chamber with this book, but it's still surprising me, so I guess we'll find out. 44%. Okay, there are a few storylines that I think are coming to actually mean something. Now, 44% into the book, I think I have a handle on a few developing pieces of action that we probably need to outline for the rest of this to kind of, sort of, make sense. Think of this book as a smoothie made out of a bunch of insane shit. You, come, you came home, Hannibal Lecter is there with an avant-garde French chef and a space alien. They've teamed up to create a smoothie in your kitchen. You see some ingredients laying around the kitchen, but you don't know what all ended up in the final product. You look at the glass of beige, it'd probably be beige, right? Like hummus color, the weirdest color for food besides pitch black, goo. And you can see in there a piece of carrot, a human ear, and there's a piece of celery sticking out of the whole thing as garnish. Celery has been placed in the exact center of the glass, and the thickness of the smoothie is holding it straight upright. But it's definitely celery, carrot, and ear in there amongst other ingredients. This smoothie... This book is a smoothie full of a bunch of shit, but I think I've identified three ingredients that will probably come up later, so we need to get them out of the way here. But that sounds boring. Just rehash a plot? How might we liven this up? A few weeks back, I signed up for the beta of something called WordsEye. This is a software that allows you to set a scene with text, write out a description of a scene, and the words are interpreted into images that appear on the screen which could be pretty cool and useful for something like visually creating a scene in a novel. Or you could just do shit like, I don't know, have a baby on a ping pong table uh, sitting next to a giant sub sandwich, which is what's here. <laughs> it doesn't too work too well with verbs, and some of the stuff doesn't translate well. Plus, I suck at using it so far. But interspersed throughout the things I'm typing here, I thought it'd be nice to include some images I made in Word's Eye using text from this chapter of Model Land. Storyline 1. Zarpessa, Tookie's enemy, is secretly poor. Earlier in the book, Tookie somehow spied Zarpessa dumpster diving or something. It turns out that Zarpessa is poor, or we're supposed to think that, but it's a big secret. Not only is it a secret that she's poor, but Zarpessa seems to insist on rubbing everyone's face in the lie that she's rich. Somehow Zarpessa knows that Tookie knows this secret, and she threatens her with empty nonsense so that Tookie won't tell, even though it doesn't seem to matter one bit in Model Land if you have cash. Um, here's an image of a clown standing next to a door that's just in the middle of nothing, and sitting on top of it is a Tarzan woman straddling the door. I'm not sure where this is going. Zarpessa... Pessa is being a total unmitigated dickhole so far, but maybe the pair will find friendship? Maybe a tearful I was only mean because I was afraid kind of thing? Maybe Zarpessa will remain mean throughout, something I wouldn't predict in a normal book because why then would we show her as poor? However, Madeleine has surprised me in stupider ways. That should be a motto for this book. Just when you thought a surprise couldn't be more stupider, it gets a whole lot much more stupider. Storyline 2 Tookie and some candidates aren't supposed to be in Model Land. 
It has been suggested with a hand heavy as Steve Avery's father's hand, take a look, kielbasa fingers all day, that Tookie and the other candidates she arrived with are misfits who don't actually belong in Model Land. This is confusing because fuck, the whole structure of this thing is confusing, but it seems like this storyline is going to play a part somehow. Um, image of a standing pair of pants with nobody wearing them and two teddy bears eating Slim Jims. <laughs> I don't know when this is going to be revealed to be true or not true, or if this is another Wonka-ing making Tookie think that she's unfit to be a model when really the true test of character is blah blah blah. I don't know how much about I don't know much about this other than to say it's happening, so it'll probably come up sooner or later. Okay, then we have a road, and standing in the road in order are a squirrel, a crumpled piece of paper, two human hands, um, a human arm skeleton hands uh another hand that's like waving in high five fashion and another skeleton hand <laughs> story three cl the seven seven from the past who was also the scout that picked up tookie and co is a bad rebel we've seen cl possibly the most annoying name i've ever typed as a till doesn't have a fucking sound associated with it is therefore rarely used and is not meant to be used as a fancy dash in fact, I looked into this a little more, and the only language where the tilde appears without being above, below, next to, or in place of a letter, it's modifying is Guarani, in which case it's a velar nasal consonant, which is the ng at the end of sing, meaning this name is perhaps pronounced singel, beating herself with a paddle. We've seen her dressed down by most of the Model Land staff, and it would seem that she disappeared for a time. CL is also the one who brought Tookie and her crew to Model Land, so it would follow that CL is pulling some bullshit by bringing a bunch of losers to Model Land, or that she's so far ahead of the others that she knows this is a good move. I don't know, it's impossible to say with this book. What we know, without being really told what happened, is that CL is in deep shit for some reason. But what it means to be in deep shit in Model Land is pretty unclear. They basically abuse the hell out of everyone anyway, so I'm not sure how different it is. It's like being in the POW camp from First Blood Part 2, but instead of hooking you up to a car battery, they use a marine battery, which we all know has more lasting power. We all know that, right? From watching these disaster prep shows. Here's an image of uh, three-dimensional text that's also reflected in the floor, and it says Kaleido Clock. These seem to be the main plot lines of the book at this point. That and Model Land Be Crazy. If that can be generously called a plot point, then there you go. We are currently 44% through the book, so I have to say I'm a little nervous. I don't think knowing what I know now, that the dramatic tension of these three points can be maintained by Tyra for another 56% of this brick. There could be twists and turns, but I have a feeling it'll be more like twists and burns. Look how clever my writing has gotten thanks to this book. You take a word, but then instead of the word, you write a different word that rhymes with that word. Suck it, F. Scott Fitz Lamold. Take that, Hemming Wrongway. How do you like me now, James No Joyce? No rules, just write. Apparently we have an Australian instructor in Model Land. Excuse me, not Australian. She's from a land called Didgeridoo which sounds exactly like Australia. It has koalas and kangaroos, although the kangaroos are tiny and rat-like and can be eaten alive, which happens twice in this chapter. 
This Aussie also has a special power, which is that she's a tongue reader. This is not a makeout thing, which is not surprising, because for being about Model Land, this is the most sexless book I've ever read, and that includes Cormac McCarthy joints that seem to be primarily about waiting for someone to have a hole blown in his head by a device used to execute beef. No, tongue reading is the ability to look at someone's tongue and determine their favorite food. Which is kind of a worthless superpower because A, you have to grab someone's tongue, and B, you could just ask. The girls go to the Aussie's class, or maybe it's a cafeteria. It's hard to tell what's going on, honestly, but after not eating for a day, they're all hoisted up in harnesses, put in front of cauldrons full of their favorite foods, and suspended there for a while before being released to eat. Tookie's favorite food is whipped cream, so that's what she eats a shitload of, including many varieties of whipped cream that don't exist. Zarpessa, the secret dumpster diver, is tongue-read as loving weird mixtures of old tossed-out food, which suggests that she is a dumpster diver who likes dumpster dive food, not that she eats it as a matter of necessity. I suppose there's possibly someone out there who prefers half-eaten meals from a dumpster to regular food. Actually, no, I don't think so. I can't believe that there's anyone who, on a pure taste level, prefers thrown-out food to its non-thrown-out version. That's fucking stupid. Tyra, that's dumb. The girls' cauldrons then all transform into elevators, the girls step inside, and the elevators go sideways into another room. Why they needed elevators to go sideways, and why they needed elevators at all, if they could just walk around, and why the elevators and food vessels are all the same things, you know what? Just another pack of Model Land mysteries. And in fact, I bet whoever built this fucking place had a lot of questions. You mean you want me to build food cauldrons, which aren't a thing, and harnesses that allow girls to be hoisted into them, which is not a way that anyone eats, and then you want the cauldrons to transformerize into elevators that move sideways rather than up? Would you be willing to settle for a table, some plates, and a hallway? Because that would be a lot easier. The non-elevator elevators drop the girls in a shower room where all the shower heads shoot out desserts. Chocolate, caramel, one is jammed because it's full of pralines. Um, again, I got my plumber in here, and he says that there's a lot you might not know about fluid dynamics, but you just can't really make a praline shower, nor would you want to. And if you did, you'd definitely have to make a shower head with big enough holes for the pralines to fall through. I'm not trying to tell you your business, I'm just wanting to make sure you know what I'm about to do in here, which is hook up a tank of pralines to a pipe, hook that to a shower head, and then it all just rots in the wall. And once again, a bunch of models covered in chocolate sauce, whipped cream, and caramel are not an ounce of anything sexy happens. Not even the slightest suggestion. Oh, and Tookie drops a whipped cream can, and do you remember the corsage thing she made out of her pin to disguise it? That whole thing? Well, apparently that has somehow become a magic food receptacle. The corsage somehow hides the whipped cream can inside of it, even though the object itself is smaller than the can. I don't get it at all. The pin swallows the can. Tookie reaches into the corsage's center, and there's a whipped cream can. I don't know how. I don't know why. I don't know. I don't fucking know. I'm getting so fatigued by things that don't make any sense, but here you go. Sometimes you drop a thing and it falls into a magic thing that you made yourself without knowing it. We've all been there. The girls finish eating, and then the Aussie labels them as one of three things. Jammers, chowers, and poachers. These are people who eat too much, too little, or just right. 
And the significance here seems to be that the Aussie tells those who starve themselves that when they're ready for help, they should come to her, which makes total sense. Come to me with your eating disorder. I harnessed you up and dropped you into a vat of bacon grease. I definitely have a healthy relationship with food. And again, for no reason, the Aussie uses a heretofore unheard of magic power to renew the girl's appetite, which she follows with this blessing. You're now so hungry you could eat the ass out of a low-flying duck. See, you ask for sexual content, and then this thing goes from zero to bestiality in one chapter. Officially announcing that I am over 50% of the way through this motherfucker. I feel like a little celebration is in order. Yes, none of us thought it was possible. Mostly me. I have a whole new respect for the people who have finished this book. My hat is off to you. I also have a new suspicion. How did you do it? What pulled you through with those dark nights? We visited a few new locations since we last spoke, so let me bring you up to speed. First, the Ua, which is spelled O-O, capital A-H, O-O-O-O-A-H-H-H-H, and all caps O-O-A-H, on the same page. Let me place here the text Tyra uses to describe this place when she enters. The fluttering light at the end of the hallway expanded into an immense glowing circle. A mannequant stood at the reception desk shaped like the letters H, O, and A. The letters moved around in a disorganized jumble, probably making it hard to set anything on the surface. There was a great round room behind the desk, its walls covered in a furry-looking fabric and its ceiling gently pulsing up and down as if breathing. This is the entrance to the Ua, which is basically a spa. Let me try. I'll do my best. A desk made of giant letters, which move around on their own, probably making it hard to set anything down on the surface of the desk. No fucking shit. A desk that's made of three components that are all oddly shaped and constantly moving. I might go so far as to suggest that this is a worthless design for a desk. I want to see someone take a shit in Model Land. I'm just coming out and saying it. I have a feeling that, at some point, a guru will remove the model's need to shit. They've already had their periods removed, and a guru was able to remove and replace hunger at will, so shits doesn't seem like a bridge too far. But I want to see how shits get done. What in the fuck is a model land toilet, I ask you? What is it made from? Does it function at all in its capacity as a waste receptacle and disposal unit? Do you flush and the bowl fills with pralines? Because I see a desk here that does not seem to serve any purpose, even though the purpose of a desk must be amongst the simplest purposes in the world, providing a flat surface on which things can be placed. It's a table with an extra piece of wood on one side, and also more often a place dreams go to die, but goddamn is its purpose simple. If no one takes a shit in this book, I'm putting it out there right now, I'll be let down. Make me read this much nonsense, and you don't give me the one thing I want, I'll be upset. I'm not much for entitlement, but I think I'm owed a shit-taking in this book. Never something I thought I would say in words, but there you go. Tyra, you owe me the depiction of shit-taking in your novel. The girls go to this spa. Nothing much happens until they come across these three ladies who can transport them into the past to relive memories. But there's a catch. A very stupid catch. All three girls, Tookie, Dylan, and whatever must go in together, all experience each other's memories or not go at all. Why this is the case is inexplicable. 
I think if the girls had asked why, the future seers would have broken down and said, look, there's a lot of fucking dumb shit in this book that just serves the narrative, okay? Grow up, that's how books work. They all decide to go, which seems like a mistake afterwards. What does Dylan relive? She's at the park with her loving father, who says he's going away for a while soon, at which point you figure out he's dying, but I was still a little surprised when he promptly dropped fucking dead right there in the park, seconds after telling Dylan he doesn't have much time. Jesus, Dad, how about you make this announcement when you've got like six months, not 45 seconds? What does girl number two relive? Long story short, she gets her entire extended family killed. Not really her fault, but kind of. Just enough her fault that she can blame herself, but not enough her fault that any reader can blame her. Oh, there is one survivor, a little girl, who has since disappeared. What does Tookie relive? A moment when she was a baby and her parents actually loved her, which could be a good memory, except she doesn't actually remember it, and it mostly causes anguish because it's like, what the fuck happened to make these people so bitter? I guess they don't have stories about genies in this world, because aren't we all aware that asking a genie character for something means you get a fucked up version of what you asked for? Genies are such wise asses. They know goddamn well when you ask for a set of wheels, you don't mean you want your legs to turn into bridge stones. They're just that bored, is that it? No TVs in their giant rooms made of pillows? Yeah, maybe you should have got a couch put in there, asshole. And now the story leaves our hero for a moment. Not without a clumsy letter Tookie writes to her mother, which begins, You probably can't believe it, but I've been in Modeland for three whole months. You motherfuckers. You made me go through 50% of this book to get through like four days, and now the first three months of Model Land, minus day one and two, are just tossed aside. The only detail we get is about a class called Gustgape, which is about <laughs> a class about how to keep your eyes open even in extreme winds. Well, if I've ever disrespected models, let me take a moment to tell you I get it now. The struggle is real. Too real, if you ask me. Having to keep your eyes open in high wind, that's definitely a feat and something that probably requires instruction. It's certainly not something you'd just, like, do when the moment arose. And is that really a class you'd take in your first quadmester at Model Land? Don't they want to teach you, I don't know, how to avoid being sued when you throw your cell phone at someone or assault, like, 11 different people, or your personal assistant or a couple of cops at the airport? How to blow rails off a Lana Del Rey album that you bought on vinyl because it seemed right and also because to blow rails off of. How to pretend you're having fun on one of the stupid celebrity game night shows. Seriously, how low is that? We've now eschewed even the low-level excitement provided by board games in favor of watching famous people play the very same board games. Finally, board games without all the hassle of playing and learning the rules and not looking at Blake Shelton. Anyway, post-letter, a letter Tookie writes to her mom, Creamy, who she hates and has no reason to contact, were transported to the diabolical divide, the chasm that separates Model Land from the rest of the world. Here we meet a man named Kamada, a guy who takes on the dangerous job of leading pilgrims across the divide and into Model Land. This is apparently a journey attempted by many who are not selected on TDOD, the Day of Discovery. Everyone collected at the non-model land side of the divide hands over wads of cash. Kamada makes them swallow a big bag of pills and take a shot in the butt to protect them from whatever awaits in the divide, and the group is about to leave when two travelers come running up. 
Creamy de la Creme, and Miracle, Tookie's mother and sister. They're going to make the dangerous trek to Model Land to, I don't know, I'm not sure what happens when they get there. Maybe they're going to remove Tookie, try and get Miracle in. I mean, that's like me blowing a job interview, walking to Google headquarters, and then they're like, well, we passed on you before in our interview process, but you did walk here. That has nothing to do with the job, but we really have no choice but to make you a member of the team. Anyway, I read the first line of the next chapter, and it starts like this. Our most unusual tale picks up at the start of the next Model and Quad Mester, three months and four days into the Bella's first year at the unusual, untouchable, and never uneventful, fantastical land at the top of the mountain. I... By my reckoning, we had something like three days in the regular world at the book's outset. Then T-Dot and the first day in Model Land seem to be one, as the girls don't have beds until the end of that first night. Then we have day two in Model Land. Then we skip three months ahead, have this brief scene, then skip four more days ahead. Five days of this book happen in approximately 50% of the text. Then we have three months that are not present at all, we skip this crucial period, but whatever. That doesn't bother me as much as why the fuck do we need to skip three months, then an additional four days? What the hell for? What's the difference? Who gives a shit about four days? Why would that matter at all? No, we go 90 days forward, then this tiny scene, then another four days. That sounds good. This whole fucking thing could have been accomplished with a three months later, but no, we had to add those four days. I'd still be mad about the three months later, I'd still be confused why the part we skip is probably the most interesting part of the book thus far. Meanwhile, I got an explanation of why a girl calls her diary fucking balls shit ass T-mail jail, but you can't at least do me the human courtesy of skipping 90 days and then giving it a rest without going another four? Damn this book. Love interest? Love interest. Our love interest is a man named Bravo from Modeland's male counterpart, Bestosterone. Let the brilliance of that one sink in. We changed a whole letter there. The whole Bestosterone thing is confusing. It seems like this is where male models go, but it also seems that Bestosterones are mostly construction workers who rebuild crap in Modeland while also being photographed. So perhaps while Modeland is a school of sorts, Bestosterone is more of a work study? If this is a scathing commentary on higher education, and if model land classes about keeping your eyes open in high winds is supposed to be Tyra's editorial on classes like The Sociology of Miley Cyrus, Race, Class, Gender, and the Media, a real class, which if anyone had a brain, would just be a constant loop of party in the USA and doing whippets, then congratulations are in order. But like many aspects of this book, the line between half-baked idea and genius is pretty thin. Well, not really. It's almost like reading this book is like how I feel about Shakespeare in high school. If you read something assuming that everything has a double or even triple meaning, then it's easy to find that double or triple meaning. If I watch Demolition Man with the assumption that this is not a straight-up balls-out action extravaganza, but instead a commentary on the way modern action movies have made someone like Stallone feel as though he's lost and confused in a future that doesn't make sense, then I bet, voila, that's the movie I will see. Anyway, I think this whole bestosterone thing is just stupid because Bravo and Tookie are just a bit at odds. Why? Because at one point, Tookie had a whipped cream goober hanging from her nose and Bravo pointed it out to her, not impolitely. 
It's like pointing out some things in your friend's teeth. For some reason, we all get defensive, but you take a breath and say, okay, this person isn't trying to hurt me. They're telling me something was in my teeth because there was something in my teeth. The implication wasn't there that there's something in my teeth and therefore I should kill myself. But you know, if the romance was easy, it just wouldn't be fun, right? There has to be a reason it doesn't work right away. And sure, this is a book where we could decide it wouldn't work because, I don't know, Bravo has a robo-penis, or bestosterone men are like Ken dolls downstairs. But no, we should just come up with a silly, awkward thing that nobody would ever do. If I was in my teens and an extremely attractive woman told me that I had something in my teeth and then continually went out of her way to talk to me and hit on me, as Bravo does to Tookie, I think I'd get over it quick. Real quick. She could repeat the two thing over and over, say it in our wedding vows, name our firstborn crap stuck in teeth, but if the person was attractive and I liked her, I think I'd be able to get past it. Anyway, we've dawdled too long. It's half past aqua and we have to get to wow class. Wow takes place in a giant ball, which pulls the girls into it via magnetism. Let's just ignore the fact that a magnet doesn't pick up human flesh. Let's ignore that. Let's ignore everything and sate our curiosity with ICP's classic line, fucking magnets, how do they work? Uh, just as a note, this was pre-COVID, and we, as we all know, ma vaccines magnetize people. Um, war of words, commonly called wow, or even more commonly called debate. But this is model land, remember? We can't call things what they are. We have to come up with insane names for shit. Wow was taught by a trolled man named Matt Joe Von Megalo. That's all we really need to say about him, other than he asks the class for a first debate topic and they decide on bra versus no bra. Shall we just transcribe the point versus counterpoint? To bra or not to bra? That is the question. The melon fruit is one to be supremely relished. A sweet treat one should enjoy in its pure rawness, without a fork to spear its tender flesh or a napkin to sop up the luscious juice that drips from our chins. Honeydews, cantaloupes, cassavas, crenshaws, muskmelons, and watermelons. Best appreciated without the interference of objects created by man's hands. Mm-mm. I guess that's the anti-bra statement. Because a watermelon shouldn't be eaten with a fork, people shouldn't wear bras. Sort of like arguing for wearing an athletic cup by saying that hot dogs shouldn't be cut into little pieces and put into mac and cheese, I guess. Sometimes it's almost like Tyra doesn't understand metaphor and simile. When you call breasts melons, that doesn't mean that they take on all the qualities of melons, and therefore anything that's true about melons is true about breasts. Like that earlier metaphor about a fog lifting like a support bra, which is kind of like the same thing here. A bra does not lift like a fog. A melon is not forked like a breast. Let's leave it at the end and check out the pro side of things. The boobies high and tight on me. My knobbies pert and firm, agree? But forever young, they will not be. No bra, they'll sag with gravity. Well, blow me down. The second rhyming argument carries the day. Much as we see in most debates. If you rhyme, then people listen to you. We all remember how that works. Lincoln's Gettyber at Gettysburg Address, four score and seven years before, and MLK's I Have a Dream That Racism Gets Creamed. Speeches are great examples of the power of silly rhyme and cleverness trumping content. Stay tuned. In our next update, we have the return of CL and the ultimate debate of niche versus popular beauty. A debate this big can only be handled by Model Land. 
Now that we've debated the merits of wearing a bra, less saggage, versus not wearing a bra, watermelon is delicious, and before our next debate can get begin, CL bursts into the room with some handlers. And now, the big announcement. CL has been demoted from model, triple seven no less, to a first year Bella. That's right, the model we all love so much is no better than our own Tookie de la Creme. I don't know what CL did to fuck up so bad, but there's no torture worse than going through model land the book again, so I can only imagine how shitty it'd be to go through the actual model land a second time. Really, it's a shame that this book has not been committed to audio. If you ever needed to play something to get a bunch of hostage takers out of a building, screw Master of Puppets, this would drive them out in no time. I always thought that was weird. I know, we'll blast ACDC, a band with amazing hooks that's actually meant to be played really loud. That'll learn them. There were moments in my life where I would totally fake a hostage situation to hear a little shoot to thrill. I'd wave a gun around and fire in the air to hear Dio's rainbow in the dark right now. Maybe it's like a marketing scheme. Some savvy marketer was like, what we'll do is put out a fake study about how this band's music can drive people crazy, then suggest it to the police. The police will investigate as far as seeing that you have to pay $12 to read the full article, say screw it, and then our boy's music will blast a bunch of criminals out of hiding. We'll look like badasses. Anyway, CL is back. Of course, Zarpessa says something bitchy about it because she says something bitchy about everything and Tookie can't stop herself. Yeah, well, you're no stranger to slumming it yourself. Oh my god, Tookie almost revealed Zarpessa's secret that she's a dumpster diver. What a disaster that would be to see a character who is repugnant in every way get taken down a peg. Why Tookie just can't out Zarpessa is beyond me. Tookie, if you feel bad about telling everybody Zarpessa's poor, just make up something else instead. I don't know what kind of rumor has effect in Model Land. Something tells me that the classic gerbil in the butt is not going to cut it, but get creative, try something. Anyway, enough about that. Back to WoW. For our second round of debate, we've got a two-person debate. Tookie and Dylan on one side, Zarpessa and Ciel on the other. The topic, quote, Unusual physicality versus defined beauty. You two, Ciel and Zarpessa, will argue that atypical features are superior to conventional beauty. Zarpessa makes a two-pronged backhanded argument. Um, uglies deserve to feel attractive too. Um, ugly people are beautiful inside. Okay, sure. I've always felt this was a strange argument. Everyone is beautiful inside. I thought we were saying that beauty wasn't important, but then we backpedal. I know the meaning of the saying is that beauty is behavior, but that's dumb. That's different, different things. Next time I fill out a job application, I'll remember to put rich in friends in the requested salary line. Idiots. Lest we think the prosecution rests, CL enters the debate as only CL can with a poem. Perhaps perfection is your snout. Queen bees have stung your handsome pout. What lies within your cantankerous head, infected hard pus in old blackheads. Strength be with you, Pessa, as you fade, whilst the UL's dance upon your grave. First off, the poet laureate of Madeline rhymed the same word with itself in a six-line poem. There are six rhymes, and two of them are the same word. 33% of your rhyming uses the same word. I mean, this is a terrible poem. Like, really bad. Here, let me try. I'm no CL, but I'll give it a shot. It seems like we're slamming Zarpessa, so here we go. Zarpessa, holy diver. 
of dumpsters, you liar. Not a rainbow in the dark, but a goddamn bum, you aardvark. In memory of Ronnie James Dio, 1957 to 2010. Might have used a rhyming dictionary on that last one, truth be told. But hold on, let's hear what Tookie and Dylan have to say. Tookie makes a long speech to CL, and her point is that only conventional beauty matters, as evidenced by the fact that people like her sister, Miracle, better than her. Compelling argument. Then, CL can't hold it in anymore, and she shouts back at Tookie. They have lobotomized you. We've all been brainwashed to think that beauty is this or that or that or that. When in fact, if we reprogram our brainwash with extra strength bleach minds, it can be that and this. We finally get the discussion of what beauty is and the value of beauty, although it's presented in a pretty simplistic way that irks me to no end. Pretty sorry showing, Model Land. I don't like when people say, this or that is beautiful, everyone is beautiful in their own way. Magazines make us only see certain things as beautiful, but really everyone's beautiful. How about instead, fuck beauty, some people are not beautiful and that's fine, and let's stop worrying about that. The primary function of the human body isn't to be a vessel for beauty. The primary function of someone who comes to my house to install cable is to install cable. I don't care if it's a hot babe or a studly dude. I care mostly about if he shows up at some point, and I strongly prefer he doesn't track shit in the house. That's pretty much it. I don't think there's a how-do-we-do form at most workplaces that's like, the person who helped you at the register, you would do her, right? Because who cares? I don't associate with people because I want to fuck them. I don't want to fuck all of my friends. Why are we trying to backwards intellectualize ourselves into saying everyone is beautiful when it's a lot easier and more realistic to say that some people find some people attractive and other people not attractive, and the truth is that you're a shitty person if you treat people a certain way based on their attractiveness? If you're not looking for a romantic partner, then don't worry about whether or not someone is attractive. Fuck it, who cares? There you go, model land. Oh, then Dylan enters the debate, says that it's all bullshit because she's fat and runs away crying. Cool debate, bros. The things that you have to write like they're normal in order to review this book. Here's how Matt Joe ends WoW class. Class is allowed to, um, depart, Matt Joe announced. I'll see you soon, but now I have to go make a, uh, special deposit. Yep, yep. Reviewer's note. This manner of speech is the one given to the speech and debate coach in Model Land. This is the only character that uhs and ums and adds something like yep yep to the end of his sentences. The speech and debate coach is the only one. Whether this is by chance, the way I suspect so many characters and the traits in this book were assigned via dartboard, or if it's a ten spoons irony, I don't know. Ten thousand spoons irony, I don't know. You, Chase snickered. I can only imagine what kind of deposit he's talking about. I think, and maybe my mind is warped and awful, that the implication here is that Macho is ending class by announcing, in essence, I'm going to go jerk off. But I don't know. I wish this was that book where a teacher ended class that way, but it's not. Maybe it is, sort of. Or possibly taking a dump? Maybe he's ending class at the appropriate time, but feels the need to tell everyone he's rushing off to shit. Again, I would love a book where a teacher said, you know what, I have to shit badly, so class dismissed. I was even just laughing, just thinking about it. I was putting myself in those teacher shoes, in that teacher's anus. You know what, class, I really got to shit, so class is over. 
Beat it. <laughs> anyway, class over, a small group of girls chase after Dylan, who's seen entering a giant plaid cube that's balanced on one of its corners. The cube, it turns out, is Catwalk Corridor, which is said with the horror the way someone would say The House of a Thousand Corpses. By the way, awkward movie title. Everyone says House of a Thousand Corpses, but technically I think it's House of One Thousand Corpses, which seems like an exacting number for a house of corpses, 850, 1023, who gives a shit? Once you've crossed a certain corpse threshold, just say a thousand. I'll fill in the blank. No need to call it by the exact number or something like House of Something in the Neighborhood of One Thousand Corpses, give or take. Catwalk Corridor is a punishment place. Models who are catty, huh, are turned into actual cats and they hang out in Catwalk Corridor, a building that can show up in any random spot and doesn't seem to exist in geographic space. The cats have painted claws, they scratch the girls, critique their looks, and offer them drugs over and over for some reason. Take one of these, you won't sleep for days. A key sign that someone doesn't know much about drugs is this. A story where a drug dealer is desperately trying to give away all of her drugs. There's that classic story about how the first taste is free, but come on, they're drugs. I can give them away to you or sell them for money to someone else. This is how drug dealers work. Think of it, I don't know, like a business. Do drywallers do one wall of a house for free, leaving you wanting more? Fuck no. In fact, I thought I'd look up whether Tyra has ever been involved in drug scandals. Her story? She has never used drugs, drank once when she was like 12, and is completely sober except she will order wine in restaurants, not to drink, but to look sexy. She can't stand the taste. Yes, nothing sexier than a lady sipping wine, holding back a face that looks like the one a baby makes when it eats a lemon wedge. And again, this has been expressed like 1,000 different ways in this review, but why is Tyra successorizing herself? She's a famous fucking supermodel. She's outlasted all of her peers. Cindy Crawford, Kathy Ireland. Kathy Ireland had a line of clothes at Kmart. She starred opposite Scott Bakula in Necessary Roughness. But still, Tyra is like, gotta look sexy, better have a glass of wine on the table in front of me. Also, I personally would have been relieved if Tyra's answer to the drug question was, you know, not really into drugs, but there was a period when I was writing a book that I just dove in head first, and I don't even remember a single word of that book or writing it. I just went into a fugue and woke up, and now every Borders has a copy of this thing with my name on it. I don't know, man. Life's weird. Maybe Tyra doesn't count hallucinogens as drugs. Is PCP not a drug in her mind? How can we explain this book coming from a complete absence of substance abuse? Back to the book. Before too long, the girls are summoned by cats, but then a lion who looks suspiciously like the Belladonna, who's like the president of Model Land, shows up, scares the cats off, and then opens her mouth and extends her tongue like a furry red carpet, which the girls walk along into her mouth, after which... They emerge in a totally different building. And again, no drugs were involved in the production of this book. The Porcelain Pact Finally, a frank discussion of eating disorders as only Model Anne can handle them. After her freakout in debate class, we find Dylan hurling in the bathroom. She's got her hair dipped in the toilet, puke on her clothes, she's moaning, and we find out that she has an eating disorder, which had been under control for three years, but her close contact with Zarpessa and CL brought it roaring back with a vengeance. 
revengeance. Before we go any further, I don't think eating disorders are hilarious, but I do think the topic is pretty poorly handled here, and that is hilarious. Dylan, for someone familiar with the binge and purge, is not great at puking. She's kneeling in puke, dipping her hair in the toilet. Look, I have an acquaintance, let's call him, who managed to puke more neatly while he was completely wasted and dressed in a Santa Claus bikini. Get your shit together, Dylan. But no time for critiques. It's time to solve eating disorders. The girls all crowd around Dylan and reveal their vulnerabilities, showing that none of them are perfect. Piper, the aforementioned albino, hates her mom for marrying her dad because her dad is albino. If I had just picked someone normal, I might not have been this way. Sure, that's how genetics work. Piper passes around a picture where she's got on a wig and makeup. Not blackface, exactly. Tan face? I would accuse this of being racist, but it's really only as racist as the over-tanned appearance of every person from fitness competitions. Shiraz, the tiny friend, I'm really small, and then my mother died, and my father subsequently died of a broken heart, which means my father only loved my mother, not me. Shiraz then pulls out a picture of her and her father with a hole poked through the picture where her father's face would be, which is a move I never understood. If you have a picture with your ex, and then you hate your ex, throw that shit away. Don't cut him out or stab his eyes out with a pencil. That's some girl-interrupted shit. Just throw it away and take a new picture. Same goes for dad. If you ever have the impulse to mutilate a photo, go ahead and just place it in the trash. Tookie. Tookie reads a letter from her T-mail jail, which is a letter about how much she hates herself. Why do you rise each day? What is the point of you even existing, of breathing this earth's precious air which rots each time you exhale? I hope you sleep tonight and don't wake up. Oh, how beautiful the world will be tomorrow with you dead. Oh, I can't wait. Please hurry up and end it. Just go, for all of us. What the fuck? A murder-slash-suicide note, not even of the what's-the-point variety, but of the you-have-no-point flavor. Okay, okay, that's pretty dark, but let's cut back to Dylan's reaction. I feel so guilty. I have had issues with my body my entire life, but I never, ever wanted to be dead. And problem solved. It turns out that all you need to do for a friend with an eating disorder is tell her something even more fucked up that you feel, and then she'll just be like, Christ, I thought I had it bad, but you're really fucked up. I'll stop hurling and let's be friends. Cool. If there's anyone out there with an eating disorder, allow me to cure you. I used to have some fear on airplanes, and then it just went away, and when I tried to figure out why, I figured out it's because I used to care whether or not I died, and now I kind of don't. In fact, if the plane crashes, I mostly just want the plane to crash early rather than spending the last three hours of my life bored and on an airplane. You're welcome. The group then decides they need to come up with a name for their friendship circle. I wish I'd been included on the conversation, and through the magic of review, I can be. The Vulnerable Four? Or maybe the V4? No, that sounds like a group of four vaginas. Or a vegetable drink that's half as fortified as its competitor. How about the Crapper Sisters? Already taken by an Amy Poehler Tina Fey spec script. What about the ULs? Stands for unfortunate lookings. I guess it saves the time for other people who want to mock you. We can take the power back, have it mean something else, like unique lookings. And now we're clearly seeing how Tyra came up with this crazy bullshit. Just start with a terrible idea, pop it in your mouth, roll it around for a while, and it will emerge as a pearl. 
or whatever you put in your mouth before, now coated in saliva. I kind of like it, but I hate that you and L are a big part of ugly. A valid and good point. Words are made up of letters that are in other words. I hate that my name, Pete, has the letter P in it, as does priaprism, which is a boner that won't go away. What about the unicas? Pronounced like unicas. Agreement all around. What a lovely name. What a good and important thing to do. Name a friend group with a dumb name that doesn't mean anything. There we go. I know we addressed and fixed eating disorders here, but it's come to my attention that there are other problems in the world. So allow me to use Model Land to cure the Model Land cure to fix everything else. I'll just list the problems so you can scroll and find yours, and then I'll tell you something bad which should fix everything. Depression. Last night I saw a video on YouTube that had dead kittens in it. I clicked on it and I don't know why, and then I regretted it and it was horrible. Obesity. I'll eat a Kit Kat by just fucking biting straight into it, and the bite will cross over into multiple bars. Cancer. I use Q-tips in my ears, even though I know you're not supposed to, but it's like, what the fuck, why do they even sell them if it's so bad for you, you know? ALS. It takes me a super long time to text my mom back. A whole new pile of crazy. Do you feel like it's been too long since this book had just a whole pile of crazy shit on the page? Like it's been a spell since Tyra had a crazy pistol to her head and blew her crazy brain out all over the manuscript, and now we're just reading all the crazy shit that can fit into vaguely English words? Good news. Welcome to the Fashion Emergency Department store, specifically the Drama Trauma Center. You might remember that Tookie got scratched up by some cat women, which is why we need to make a trip to the DTC. Now, for the first time, halfway through the book, Tookie lets us know that her mother took her to a bunch of unnecessary medical appointments to find out why her forehead was big and why she could eat without gaining weight. I like that idea, subjecting someone to hospital visits because they have a trait you're pissed off about. This guy's handsome. Tell me how to fix it. And why do shitty books and movies think not liking the hospital is a character trait? And why do the characters have to provide a dumb reason they don't like the hospital? That is such a book-slash-movie thing, everything needing a specific reason. The hospital sucks. You can just hate it because it sucks. I've only been there a couple times, and there wasn't anything specifically unpleasant about it, but it still sucks balls. Feel free to let me know when a character is totally into the hospital, or at least doesn't mind it. You might as well develop a character by saying, our plucky protagonist is a living human female who prefers a mix of oxygen and nitrogen for breathing, would rather not have her fingers cut off than have her fingers cut off, and don't turn away now, there's more, read on. We enter the whatever it's called, and we meet purse dressed to kill. Quote, at Model Land, I guess nurses are called purses. God damn it. Yeah, I guess so. I guess nurses are called purses, a commons is called an uncommons, and a person is called a CL. I just, I want to express my anger that this is the first fucking time Tookie is like, gee, things here sure have weird names, huh? And it's for a nurse called Purse. A one-letter swap that, granted, has no purpose whatsoever, but this is like the one billionth stupidly named fucking thing in this book, and for whatever reason, it's the one that trips Tookie's trigger. You know what? Fine. Whatever. We have to move on because purse, fuck shit. Dress to kill, also fuck shit. And hang on, one S, two O's, 
the complete opposite of what it should be, fuck hell fuck, is also made out of knives. Yes, she has blades all over her body and a pair of scissors instead of the normal domed top of a human skull. And then we get the doctor who has roller skates for feet. Why? Oh, it's Monoland, which means there's a completely unsatisfying and unnecessary explanation, which is as follows. All doctors here at Monoland have them. Monoland was a blessing for my kind, because the powers that be at Monoland recognized that skates for feet would be put to good use in emergency medical situations. They figured we could get from one patient to the next with speed and ease. So they trained us all, and here I am. They take good care of us. My daughter... Kamina Marsh, she's about your age. She's just like her mama. Got roller skates for feet, too. She wouldn't have a chance in life without this place. She's in medical school right now. Wait, there's more. Modeland isn't just what you see when you go from class to class. There is a whole underground world here. Parts of it are still a mystery to even me, and I was born here. Okay, recap. Freaks born with roller skate feet and knife heads are taken in by Modeland to be doctors and whatnot, and they live underground in Modeland. In a competent book, I would be 100% sure this was important information. I would be sure, based on this revelation, that the underground part of Modeland, this working class, would play a big part in the story at some point. In this book, I just don't know. I have no fucking idea. Take my beloved Demolition Man. There's an underground society in that movie, and they waste no time showing its existence. They allude to it, not subtly, like three times before the movie actually goes and checks it out. The viewer is going, huh, I wonder what's going on in this underground city, as opposed to, wait, what? There's an underground city of roller skate weirdos? Model Land has had exactly zero mentions of an underground, let alone some kind of behind-the-scenes staff thus far. What, well, couldn't you at least mention this somehow? Make me think something is going on? Show a hand coming out of the sewer? A ghoulie emerging from the toilet? Oh wait, can we take a break? It's time for a PSA. Dr. Erica. I'm a doctor, not a purse. Zarpessa. Of course. I'm sorry, doctor. Of course, doctor. But you only handle the small stuff, right? Like knitting up cut knees and putting patches on bumps and scrapes. The big stuff is for a man's mind. Open heart surgery, brain trauma, that kind of thing. Dr. Erica. It sounds like brain trauma might be something I should check you for. I read it, stood up from my seat at Starbucks, and clapped. Well done. Finally, striking a blow for all the women doctors out there being berated by 14-year-old dumpster divers in bizarre modeling-based schools. It's about time we took them down a peg. And hey, maybe this message will make a little girl think I could be a doctor. I mean, probably not. I would hope that no doctor I ever see has read this book because I'm afraid it's like LSD and parts of it are stored in your body waiting to flash you back to some crazy shit. Anyway, the fucking ER is like the place where Willy Wonka victims go. There's a girl who has boy withdrawal. There are two girls who are turning into horses and diagnosed with clothes horse. And Tookie gets a little time with the doctor where the doc explains why names are so important. Oh, and I know you heard me talking about how children grow up a certain way depending on what their parents name them. Dig deep to see if your name is something to follow or fight against, Tookie. The last syllable sounds like key. Maybe you're searching for something and you have the power to unlock it or set it free. That's, wow. That's like the classic Monique quote. If you take the tea off diet, you know what that spells? Die 
which means you need to eat that good food. Right. Sort of like how if you take the E off of dime, it spells dim, which is because if you only have a dime, your chances of success are dim. Or if you listen to the first part of my name, P, that makes sense because I pee sometimes. Isn't it amazing how words are made out of other words? There's a real English 400 class in this model land, I tell you what. Tookie is given some Z meds, which have a Z effect, which means that she starts her words with Zs. And of course, how embarrassing, this is when the love of Tookie's last couple of days of life, bravo, enters the scene. And now the romance between Tookie and Bravo heats up, sort of. I'm just going to put it out there. The problem with this romance is not one that's exclusive to Model Land. In fact, it's everywhere. I saw Avengers Age of Ultron this last summer, and the romance between the Black Widow and the Hulk, my god, was that unearned. When two characters fall in love, I think I need one of two things. One, to be so in love with one or both of the characters that I feel like, duh, who wouldn't be in love with this character? To use The Office as analogous, Jim and Pam. They're the best-looking people in The Office, and they're the most fun. Anyone in that situation would be in love with Jim and Pam. Nobody's like, I don't know, I'm kind of a Bob Vance gal myself. To not be in love, or two, to not be in love myself, but to see the characters and totally understand why they would love each other. To go to The Office again, Angela and Dwight. They're abrasive and weird, but their idiosyncrasies match up perfectly. These two types of on-screen romances work because I either feel what the characters feel or can understand why they feel what they feel. For Avengers, I guess I felt the first beauty-type level of romance. The actors were pretty good-looking, although pretty much everyone in those movies is good-looking, so it's kind of moot. But when they tried to go for the second level with the I have a monster inside me and me too in that I don't have a uterus making me unable to have babies, therefore a monster, I didn't get there. And not to get too nerdy, but Bruce Banner and Tony Stark. They made a Robo-Man. Two Robo-Men, in fact. I think that cloning from a mixture of DNAs would be pretty fucking easy for them. Just saying. Just saying, if Black Widow wanted to make a baby and didn't mind making it in a lab, she has access to some pretty great resources and could probably even pick a hair color for the kid. Believe it or not, Model Land does an even worse job with romance than a movie about a green monster with purple pants and his robot friend and their barren Russian spy friend. Let's look at the romance angles in Model Land. Tookie, I'm told, is borderline hideous, from her perspective. But at the very least, she's an unconventional beauty. Tookie doesn't feel beautiful, but probably is. The problem is, I don't actually know what she looks like, other than to say everything about her sounds like a young Tyra Banks, with the exception of eyes that are different colors. If the book were written in the first person, it would totally make sense. Well, let's not go that far. It'd still be fucking nuts. But at least it would make sense for a young girl to perhaps undervalue her own looks in the face of so many pretty models. Also, if this book were written in the first person, we could always pretend that Tookie had suffered a severe head injury and that's why the story read like this. That would be a good thing for Tyra to have kept in her back pocket. Classic unreliable narrator, victim of eyeliner-induced brain fever or something. But the book is third-person omniscient, which means we should be hearing about what Tookie actually looks like here and there, but we really aren't. I have to assume Tookie is hot. 
It's a problematic, confusing assumption because everyone treats Tookie like a chud, but the only options are to assume she's young Tyra or actually an uggo, and I'm going young Tyra based on, well, the entirety of the text. This is also the only way the love story makes sense. Why would Tookie be infatuated with Bravo at this point, knowing nothing about him, unless it was a physical attraction, and what personality traits of Tookie's could Bravo possibly be aware of? In terms of personality, Tookie would make the most unbearable romantic partner of all time. My god, can you imagine? Oh, I don't know why you stay with me, I'm not very pretty. Oh, I don't think I'm pretty enough to go to that Starbucks. Let's go to the one across town. Oh, I speak every language ever and am the most morally perfect person to ever walk the earth, but I can't stop being surprised whenever someone treats me with a modicum of humanity. So let's get ready to have a 20-minute discussion should anyone ever hold a door for me or not just cut in front of me in line because I'm so invisible. Bravo's attractive. We know that, and I think we're supposed to think he's a good dude because he has a thing for Tookie as opposed to the hundred or so other attractive girls walking around. See, we readers know Tookie is a good soul, not in the way where we feel it, but we're told this is a fact a time and again, but I don't know how Bravo would know that. Here's where it gets interesting. Well, it's boring first, then interesting. Bravo comes in to visit Tookie while Tookie is under the influence of the Z-Meds, which reduce her pain but force all her words to start with Zs. So she says she's Zungri. She says Zaha instead of Aha. Uh -huh. It's a 90 Zima commercial all the way. Zumzing's different. Zumzing stupid. Bravo hand-feeds Tookie for some reason. She has a cat scratch on her lip. She didn't fall off a four-story fucking balcony. A kitty scratched her face. Give me a break. Then, Bravo's about to kiss Tookie, even though she's currently sporting an actively bleeding lip wound, but Zarpessa jumps in to be a jerk, and we find out Tookie's never kissed anyone before. Zarpessa's on the attack, but luckily, Bravo shuts her down. Look, I told you to leave her alone. Why can't your bitchy little brain understand that? And now I'm totally turned around. I'm ready to fuck the guy. How long have we been waiting for somebody to tell Zarpessa to shut the fuck up? Finally, finally, someone tells this character to shut her pie hole. If this were a true story, I would at the very least seek out the basis for this Bravo character and offer him a high five with the option to extend into a light handjob. Zarpessa fucks off and Tookie and Bravo play with Tookie's magic brooch that can contain any number of items without changing size. Neil deGrasse Tyson's head explodes and then Tookie is wheeled off to the OR, which is called the ORUOK in Model Land. Or you okay? Like, are you okay? Oh, are you okay? Who knows? The doctor says, I think he likes you. This lip procedure's not pretty, but you are. Tookie's reaction is, of course, along the lines of, no way, not me, not queen of the chuds, lord of the sewers, Tookie de la creme. But her reaction isn't the interesting part. The interesting part is that this is probably the first confirmation that Tookie is actually good-looking. It's fucking annoying that it's over halfway through the book and that it comes from only one person, but so be it, confirmation that Tookie actually is attractive. It's clearly an ugly duckling story, right? Oh, this awkward, skinny teen ages into a beautiful woman. The moral of the story is supposed to be we should accept each other regardless of beauty, but the narrative moral is don't worry if you're not hot just as long as you get hot eventually. Wow, thanks. Was that story written by Hans Christian Andersen after his high school reunion? 
Was Hans a roly-poly teen who returned with abs and a sweet car to rub it in everyone's face? Oh, this suit? Let's just say the Emperor's lack of clothes made old Hans more than enough to buy himself the finest. Uh, you know what? Not likely. I just looked up Hans Christian Andersen and woof. So what we've got in Model Land is an ugly duckling story, but it's even worse because it's purely psychological, and also it's inexplicable why everyone else seems to think Tookie's a chud when she's not. When did everyone in Model Land, with the exception of Bravo and this doctor, get together and decide to nag on Tookie? How and why was this done? Okay, let's focus on the takeaways. Takeaway. Tookie is, in fact, attractive. Takeaway. Bravo is also hot. Takeaway. This is not why they're in love, although the truth is yet to be explored. Takeaway. We couldn't go one serious romantic chapter without some stupid bullshit having a stupid name like the O-R-U-O-K. Double updates. Wow. Yes, friends, I worked the weekend, and that means there's time for double updates. Celebrate this glorious day. Really ring the juices here. When we last met, Tookie was being wheeled into surgery for a scratch on her lip, and in this chapter, she wakes up in an all-glass building that is, gasp, the giant M building of Modeland, the one that candidates are forbidden from entering. Of course, Tookie's first thought is, I'm not supposed to be here, I'd better escape. Let's ignore the fact that I was wheeled in here while I was unconscious and a bunch of people almost certainly saw me. Let's ignore the fact that I had nothing to do with my entry into this building. Let's ignore that and instead engage in a escape scene straight out of Metal Gear Solid. See, the M building is all glass, and the different glass panes fog and defog from time to time, so you can make your around by way around by sneaking just right. And if you get far enough, you might make it to the same sign Tookie found, the one that says, Emergency Exit to the M, even though the signs means to say, From the M. Not to mention that I've never seen an exit sign that specifies the building it's for. You are currently in McDonald's. To exit McDonald's, use this McDonald's exit door. And hey, fuck BK. Seriously, have a great night. Also, if you make your escape just right, you can overhear CL talking to the Belladonna, queen model of Modeland, revealing what the fuck is going on. I'm going to make this brief. We don't actually know what CL did to get punished so much, and we still don't after this scene because the Belladonna and CL managed to talk with some serious verbal gymnastics that didn't completely avoid specificity. But we do learn that CL knows a secret about the Belladonna. What secret? It turns out T-Dod, the Day of Discovery, is a sham. All those girls dancing around in the streets? Turns out models aren't selected on that day, but a predetermined list is created and pre-selected models are simply picked up out of the dancing crowds. Now this is supposed to be world-shattering. My god, it's like finding out the Super Bowl is rigged or something. Or like a NASCAR thing. Whatever their big thing is for NASCAR, imagine if that thing had a predestined outcome. Honestly, I don't know how this wasn't the case. Tyra made a big point about T-Dod, but I didn't know that we, as readers, were supposed to assume that selection was all T-Dod-based. That's a girl's performance, that a girl's performance that day is the single thing that decides whether she's worthy for Model Land. In fact, Tookie found the Smize, which was supposed to guarantee her passage to Model Land. Wasn't that the whole point? So the Smize people are predetermined, but the rest are doing a three-minute dance-off or something? 
And people would be really upset if they found out that entrance to Model Land was actually slightly more rigorous. I'm becoming less and less sure that Tyra is remembering what she wrote previously in her own book. Each new section makes the less and less clear to me. But wait, now we get the real bombshell. Seal knows that the Belladonna violated one of the three Belladonna tenets. Do not mess with the predetermined Model Land selection list. Who did the Belladonna put on that list? Tookie Della Creme. Boom. So, the big revelation here is the one that we've suspected as readers from the very beginning, and the one Tookie has suspected herself. It's less a reveal than it is a fulfillment of the boringest prophecy ever, but what the hell, let's roll with it. Seal also says she's experimenting on the Unicas, Tookie, Dylan, Piper, and Shiraz, and she's doing things to their bodies. That's all we get before Tookie makes her escape out of the door marked in order to exit the M, the building in which you currently stand, the door below this sign would be an acceptable route. Thank you for visiting the M. If you're escaping and not really visiting, shame on you, but well, you read all this stuff before this already, so there's no going back now. Quick smash cut to the Diabolical Divide, where Miracle and Creamy are making their way to Model Land by land. Their traveling mates have been attacked by some kind of weird creatures, and as they sleep, some kind of plant tries to kill them slowly. But Miracle and Creamy are doing quite alright due to Creamy's uncharacteristic preparation and knowledge. It seems she's the Bear grills of the DD, knowing what to do with each kind of danger. I'm guessing we'll find out some bullshit about how Creamy's made the trip before, but it's hard to say. It might not even matter. Also worth mentioning, one of the travelers is a hunchback they've affectionately named Hunchy. Hunchy is from a race of people who eat the organs of the albinos, and he's apparently headed to Monoland to eat the organs of Tookie's albino friend. I don't know why he has such a hard-on for her organs specifically, but there you go. That's pretty much it for the Diabolical Divide. Back to Monoland, where Tookie runs back to tell her friends what happens. On her way... Tookie wrestles with the fact that she took another girl's spot in Model Land, maybe stealing the slot from, quote, a girl who is worse off than even I was. Fuck me, we get it. Tookie is the most selfless person of all time. We get it, 10-4, okay. Oh, except she runs into Bravo, and for some reason she has no problem brushing him off and being frankly kind of a dick. Bravo, the rift architect who is almost infatuated with Tookie, who's also really nice to her, who finally told Zarpessa to fuck off, who Tookie is also very attracted to, but she keeps blowing him off because, well, if she didn't, then they would just be romantically involved and that would wrap up the whole portion of the tale. So instead, Tookie has to literally shove Bravo out of the way when he's about to kiss her, and she runs away to tell her gal pals about what she just learned. Am I the only one who hopes that Bravo gives up on Tookie? That he's like, Whatever, I liked Tookie, but how many times can she physically shove me out of the way to go do something else before I move on? Tookie arrives at the D, after slapping away the best D in all of Model Land, and tells the other Unicas what's going on, that CL has been acting, to borrow a phrase from Dylan, crazy, and that they're poised to be the subjects of experimentation. Okay, okay, let me recap this for a second. CL fucked up somehow. She's been tortured horribly. She's been forced to return to first-year classes. The Belladonna replaced a legit candidate with Tookie, and CL knows this. Therefore, CL is blackmailing the Belladonna, who is allowing CL to experiment on the Unicas. Experiment being an ill-defined term so far. This leaves a lot of questions. I'll give it up. I'm fucking confused. 
If CL is holding the cards, why is why the torture? Why the return to classes? If CL learned this information by working in the admissions department, wouldn't everyone in that department know this information? What is going on here? How does any of this make any kind of sense? What sort of backwards-ass plot is developing here? Smart Money is on a Snape situation here. I'm thinking CL is secretly a good guy somehow. But I guess the story could be that the Belladonna is secretly good, although she's the Belladonna, so why the secrecy? None of this is important. What's important is that the Unicas decide that the thing to do is escape Model Land. And thus, we get the stupidest ever formation of an escape plan ever created in fiction. The decision is made to escape, and by the way, includes the best joke in the book so far. Tookie, we have to escape. Dylan, I'll do anything not to get tortured, even if it means going back to work in customer service. Okay, when planning an escape, there's certainly no one way to do it. You could say, alright, I want to be over there, let's work our way backwards. Or you could say, I know my immediate surroundings best, let's plan it from where I stand now to where I want to be. Or you could even think about it in a different part order, like hardest part first. Or you could be a Unica and decide that the first thing to do is assign roles. Yes, assign roles before you know what you're going to do, where you're going, and what might be required. This is like the best part of an action movie, getting the team together. We're all familiar with this trope from the Oceans movies, but it's probably done best, or at least most, in Armageddon. A film where we had a dozen different people to pull together, all of whom run away from the authorities attempting to recruit them. One even runs away on horseback. I'm not afraid to call Armageddon a film. How does the Model Land version look? Piper, the researcher and tech expert. She's good with that stuff, so it's important to have a researcher and tech expert to, I don't know, sit in the library with a giant book called How to Escape Stuff. Can we take a second? I think it's stupid that horror movies that have created this expectation where a student comes into the library to write a paper and is like, I need a book about religion in Germany before World War II, and then when you pull down a couple books for someone and explain that they might have to synthesize the info from multiple sources, they seem disappointed that you didn't have a book that shares the exact title of their paper. It's always the horror movies, they go to the library and they're like, I need information on the hauntings at this address, and then some dusty old broad puts pulls down two huge volumes of news clippings and is all, this is all we have. Or we get a dictionary of the occult open to a page and it's like, peak, comma, crimson, definition, a scary house with haunts. You can defeat these haunts with the following methods. Stupid youths. Right, back to the team. Dylan, big mouth distraction. I guess you'll just yell or maybe gossip loudly in order to make this happen. Shiraz, speedy lookout. We don't know what she'll be looking for, or where, but she's the fastest, so it only makes sense. I guess she must also be a wuss. Everyone knows the wuss offers to be a lookout because they think they won't get in trouble. Newsflash, wusses. You can't be a lookout for a bank robber and get out of trouble. You're still fucked. This is a childhood lesson we should really be incorporating into classrooms. Core knowledge, my ass. And finally, Tookie. Well, nobody can think of what Tookie is good at. She doesn't seem to have any real skills, so they make her the leader. Sounds like a lot of work teams that I know. And with that, the girls think for weeks and come up with two plans. Brilliant plan one, or as I dubbed it, plan alpha. There is a zip zap, one of those teleport things, near the new stadium being built by the boys of Bestosterone. 
Zenzen, one of the upper levels, said not to use it because it's a 50-50 chance you'll get where you want to go, but you might end up in the Diabolical Divide, which is just on the other side of the wall. Brilliant Plan 2, or as I dubbed it, Plan Cobra Strike, just go over the fucking wall. Cobra Strike isn't a horrible plan, but it took a few weeks to come up with that. Come on, ladies. Okay, now an astute observer will note that the Diabolical Divide is to be avoided, and Plan 1 gives us a 50-50 chance of doing just that. Plan 2 provides absolutely no chance that we'll avoid the DD. And therefore, the Unicas pick Plan 2. Yep, they're that stupid. Imagine, if you will, you were presented with two plates of food. You must eat one of these plates of food. Plate A has a 50-50 chance of containing spoiled meat, which would make you sick. Plan B, 100% for sure, has spoiled meat on it, and it will absolutely make you sick. You can pick between these plates, and you pick plate B because, hey, at least you know you're going to get sick. Idiots. The girls are formulating a plan which seems to consist of going to a wall and climbing it when a girl, totally separate from the Unicas, scales the wall herself one night in an attempt to make a daring escape. The girl scales the wall and makes it to the other side. Then, lightning strikes the wall, making it see-through, and the girls watch in horror as the escapee is instantly aged 50 years. Lightning strikes the wall a second time, rendering the wall into a two-way mirror so that the escapee can marvel at the horror of her face while the girls inside Model Land can still see her. And then a roller coaster car appears to take the girl back home so that her boyfriend can see she's become a hideous old shrew. Oh, and then a third lightning bolt hits the wall and turns it back into a regular-ass wall. The consequences of scaling the wall is being aged 50 years, so that's no longer going to work for the Unicas even though these are supposedly unattractive girls who fear they'll be killed. But fuck that. More exciting to me was the way that Tyra managed to show what was happening on the other side of a wall. She really puzzled that one out. Okay, I got this girl on the other side of a wall. I need the girls to see what happens. Hmm, mirror, window, some kind of magic-looking device. No, no, that's all too far-fetched. Okay, I got it. Crazy lightning will strike the wall, rendering it transparent, a thing that does not happen ever, anywhere. Then, I need the girl to see she's aged. Hmm, I got it. Second lightning strike, and that strike turns the wall into a two-way mirror, an even more unlikely thing, which makes the first strike seem almost sane. And then, fuck it, just to tie up loose ends, I'll make sure there's a third lightning strike that turns the wall back to normal. I don't want to have to keep remembering that there's a see-through part of the wall. The whole thing ends with the Unicas deciding that, no, they can't escape by climbing the wall, and Tookie writes CL a letter in her team ale jail, basically saying she's confused because it seems like CL cares about the girls, but she knows they're just experiments to her. Team ale jail, if it had been used consistently, could have been a way to do like the end of a Scrubs episode where the narration kind of says a little too much, but you know, most of us weren't paying close attention the whole time. That's kind of what TMJ does here, but goddamn is it clumsy. Is CL really a baddie? Is the Belladonna on the Unica's side? What will lightning turn transparent next? Stay tuned. Model Land. Model Land. Model Land. I was singing this song in my head today and realized it was the background vocals to the Simpsons monorail song, but I replaced monorail with model land and replaced the upbeat tone of hopefulness with a tone that's more like something from a Silent Hill game. 
last time on Pete's exhaustive review of Model Land. Oldie McOld got turned old when she jumped over the wall, and the Unicas needed to make a new escape plan. By the way, the wall Oldie went over, the one that was struck by lightning until it turned transparent, and then struck again to be a two-way mirror, and then struck again to go back to normal, well now it's reconfigured itself to create a collage of the old lady before jumping and after. Okay, the wall can just reconfigure itself, but before it had to be struck by lightning. How many powers does this wall have, and how can we deploy them in the worst possible ways? And why is a wall the most interesting character at the moment? I don't have the answers to these questions, but the bad news is that we now must leave this fascinating wall to go into the M building, where the models are all being called for some reason. Yes, the same M building Tookie freaked out about being in, the M building that we're all never supposed to enter. For those keeping score, we're now entering the forbidden building twice within the same 10% of this book. For being a forbidden building, we seem to end up there a lot lately. I'm fucking dying to see if Tyra breaks the fourth wall. I can smell it. I feel like it's gonna happen. This would have been the perfect time, because in Model Land, the rules get broken out of narrative necessity, darling. That's how the narration in this book is. It's always like, darling this and darling that. We go back in the building, and Tookie notices a lot of security guards and how difficult it must be to get in or out of the M, and she wonders how she could have escaped before, but thank goodness she comes up with a solid reasoning of how it worked. The whole ordeal was just a blur now. Perfect. You know what? I'm tired of being polite. I think Tyra Banks is stupid. I really do. Because the only explanation for having Tookie escape the M, which she never went into willingly, then go back in, then notice a bunch of security and how locked down the place is, then wonder how she escaped a day ago, and then decide she must have forgotten something from like a day ago, the only explanation for this is that Tyra is stupid. There is no other possible explanation for why you would write yourself into such a minor corner and then, upon revision, barely be able to write yourself out of it. The Belladonna shows up, and she leads the models in a song about a girl who went over the wall. There's nothing like a Model Land song, shall we? Model Land was once her home, home, but foolish lust we don't condone, don't. Now a cursed and cracked gem stone, stone, Model Land is not her home. Where to begin? Let's try and figure out how this is in any way a song. Syllabically, we're looking at 7877. So that doesn't really make sense. The third line doesn't seem to have a subject. Done is pronounced as down. It's done, like finished. This chanty thing doesn't really work. I don't know why we have a space ellipses and then a space. And look at the first and last line. Model Land was once her home. Model Land is not her home. These pretty much say the same thing, and they're two lines of a four-line song. 50% of this crappy song is the same thing. How is she a gemstone? How did we not use the rhyme crone? How did we not... God, you know what? I'll just redo it. Oh, Model Land, this was her home, home, home. She jumped the wall to jump a bone, bone, bone. And now she's just a dusty crone, crone, crone. There you have it. Now let's go home. But the models don't have my version. They had the Belladonna's stupid version, and she made everyone sing it six times. Why? Because fuck you, it's Model Land. That should be the motto of this book. The flap should say, what's the mystery? Fuck you, it's Model Land. What will happen to these girls? Fuck you, it's Model Land. Why are you holding this? Fuck you, it's Model Land.
The Belladonna gives a speech about how she's pissed because Oldie left for a man. And we get whoop, 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 clumsy Tyra feminism alert, clumsy Tyra feminism alert. Zarpessa. But Madame Belladonna, I don't think it's wrong to live for a man. Their intelligence is far greater than ours, and it is our duty to submit to lo and love and Belladonna. Where on earth did you manage to come up with that rubbish? So you would derail your life to be with a man? You would risk your face, your model land, and Toxabella future for that nonsense you call love? Yes, it seems for the last few chapters, Arpessa has existed to spout the dumb anti-woman stuff, which works perfectly because we all want to see her go down a peg. Two birds with one stone. We have her say something anti-woman and then slap her down. We deliver a message for the kids, and then we get to see Zarpessa flattened. Win, win. Kids, I just want to say, do not read this book if you want to learn anything about equality, beauty, songs, architecture, love, family, relationships, plotting, storytelling, makeup, dorm life, butts, people with hands for faces. The only thing that one walks away with from this book with its peak inside Tyra's head which is that I can only assume is what's in the puzzle box from Hellraiser and complete bafflement when it comes to the state of American book publishing. Also, hold the phone. The Belladonna says that dating a man means you risk your face? What does that mean? Is there something I'm missing out on when it comes to dating? Is there some kind of power I possess to sap the youth from a woman's face and draw it into my own body? Because if there is, tell me now, or so help me, I'll find out for myself, and we will all feel the wrath of my new abilities to mummify a face. Women I date, the before and after will look like the before and after of the president, when he goes in looking young and ready and comes out of office looking like his last act was to sacrifice a turtle and a hippo who became unlikely friends, but he had to kill them by tossing them into separate volcanoes where they burned alone and sad. Alright, so love is not cool in Model Land. Oh, also, the scene with the Belladonna takes place in a pitch dark because apparently no one actually knows what she looks like, which I would have thought would have been more important up to now that she's an unknown, but I'm fucking stupid, and fuck you, it's Model Land. I mean, fuck me, it's Model Land. But this book is so bad that I don't even know that the Belladonna hasn't been seen yet. That seems like a big deal, and it's a big deal in this scene, 70% of the way through the book, but up till now I just assumed that, like everything, the Belladonna just wasn't described because Tyra doesn't describe things until she has a wacky idea for them. Interlude, The Diabolical Divide The travelers are miserable. Creamy takes the fuck over. She apparently knows some kind of swamp monster whose body is made out of musical instruments. Mm-hmm with sideways-turned symbols for teeth. The monster eats someone because Creamy is crazy as hell, and it's pretty clear at this point that Creamy knows an awful lot about the Diabolical Divide, but we aren't being told what, why, or how. This whole business with Creamy and the Diabolical Divide has all the trademarks of any good model and mystery. It's confusing, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to think, and fuck you, it's model land. Alright, everyone. That's gonna do us for today. Um, thanks for sticking with another part. I think we'll have one more, one more reading and then we'll be at the end and, you know, ultimate fuck you, it's model land. So, uh, hopefully you've been enjoying this, but, um, uh, you know, maybe you're not. And that's reasonable because, uh, well, fuck you, it's model land. But somebody's Let's talk about tune time. Let's talk about bum wine, yeah, asking the questions that nobody should.
Like who are the bone thugs and are they in harmony? Your helpful snowman. 